That's one of the most satisfying sounds I know, the crunch of a crispy baguette and the sound of butter being spread on the toast before crunching into it. Because this episode and the next are dedicated to one of the biggest crops on the planet, which is wheat. This is the story of more than just a crop. This is the story of how the cultivation of a wild grass changed humankind forever. But before we dig deep into the history, let's talk about how good it can taste. Welcome to the science behind your salad. Some of the finest salad recipes available feature breads. And so, to discuss how the whole texture of salad can be changed by the addition of a bread, is the food writer Felicity Cloak. Felicity writes for The Guardian newspaper in the UK. Her column is about how to make the perfect dish. And in her column, Felicity has featured the iconic Caesar salad. Romaine lettuce, Parmesan cheese, the classic Caesar salad dressing with Dijon mustard, lemon juice, anchovies, garlic and egg yolks. Chicken if you prefer, and of course, the crunch of a crouton. Hi Felicity, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's really lovely to see you, albeit on Zoom. I'd rather be eating a piece of cake with you. Me too, that would be great, wouldn't it? A real life cake scenario. Or a Caesar salad. I mean, it's 10.30 in the morning when we're talking, so I could eat a Caesar salad now. I mean, it's always, always a good time for a bit of garlic and anchovy, in my opinion. Exactly, exactly. So I'm going to throw you in at the deep end. Give us your top tips for making a Caesar salad. The crouton's all important, isn't it? What sort of bread lends itself to the perfect crouton? I would go for something that you can slice a bit more thickly yourself. Um, doesn't have to be sourdough, but something with just a bit of heft. Not something that soaks up too much oil like focaccia. But yeah, anything you have in that isn't too strongly flavoured, yeah, anything with a bit of heft. And if it's not stale, because we've all done it, we just decided we really want Caesar salad and we don't have any stale bread, you can just put it in a low oven to make it, give it that extra crunchiness before you use it. And can you remember either your first Caesar salad or your best Caesar salad and, and, and why? Oh, uh, well, I think the best is actually a bit weird. I think that I it's the best just because... It was unusual and it's not, you know, it's not a can canonical Caesar salad, but it was in a hotel in New York um, a few years ago and it was made with kale, which sounds really worthy, but kale actually worked really, really well and it's very punchy. It had that sort of New York strength of flavour, strength of character. Um, and, you know, it's very garlicky. It was very anchovy um, heavy. And we ate them with some really dry, cold American-sized martinis. And I think it just stood out because it, it felt glamorous, like the original Caesar salad would have been when it was invented. I've got a lovely picture of that going on in New York. And a couple of weeks ago, your masterclass in Feast was on Panzanella. And um, and we've touched on panzanella in this podcast before when we did the tomato episode. Can you talk us through your masterclass that you, you put out um, in that issue of Feast? I can tell you that probably it made a lot of Italians laugh because panzanella is one of those dishes like... 
don't know, like bread and butter pudding or bubble or squeak that is designed to use up stale bread. So generally tomatoes um, are great because they're so juicy and you want their juices in the salad. Um, I put peppers in mine, but, you know, people... I tried recipes that used cucumber, used celery. It doesn't really matter that much as long as as long as you've got the bread in there and there's something moist to wet it so you're not just eating a salad of dry bread, which, let's face it, is not, not an appetising way to uh, use up the end of a loaf. And I think you need a bit of acidity, and so I like to moisten the bread itself with a little bit of vinegar. Um, you could use water, but I just think in a salad you want a bit of sharpness, don't you? Um, and then I chuck in some capers and some strong flavours, um, anchovies again. But anything else is sort of up to you as long as you you have that bread and it has flavour and it and it it's not dry yeah and, and I, I love i mean the thread of all of those dishes you mentioned bread and butter pudding panzanella caesar salad you know it's it's they're also really good for preventing waste you know if you've got a heel of a loaf then either throw it in the freezer or or make a salad for that evening and, and use it up rather than throw it out you could make um, the Spanish soup um, salmorejo, I think I'm right, in saying, which is like a gazpacho but thickened with bread. You could make the Italians do a sort of bread soup as well, which I can't remember the name of, but it's a bit like a minestrone but flavoured with thickened with bread. You could make a bread sauce. You can toast the breadcrumbs in oil and garlic and put them on top of a pasta dish, which I think is called poor man's parmesan because it's got that sort of crunchy, um, savoury note that you get from parmesan. It's just endless there is no reason to throw away bread unless it's gone moldy it's so versatile yeah yeah well it's clear that we love bread um and i, I was just wondering what is your favorite dish with bread oh i mean i'm tempted to just go very simple and very truthful and say that i think my favorite dish of all time is just but really good buttered toast you know lovely soft white bloomer or some craggy sourdough or even some really dark rye toasted with loads of salty butter and maybe some marmite on top but actually it can be a really versatile ingredient you know core ingredient to dishes uh, i don't think we give it enough respect in this country it's not just sandwiches hail the toast yes <laughs> give it respect forgive me for salivating but as felicity just described there are few things as comforting and as rewarding as hot buttered toast Bread, pastries, pizza, pasta, noodles, porridge, crackers, biscuits, muesli, pancakes, pies, polenta and semolina. Cakes, cookies, muffins, rolls, donuts, gravy and bread cereals. Wheat covers more of the earth than any other crop. It's a resilient crop growing in the dry and cold climates where rice and corn cannot. Wheat is the leading source of vegetable protein for humans worldwide. The wheat trade is greater than for any other crops combined. In 2017, global wheat production was 772 million tonnes, led by China, India and Russia, collectively providing 41% of the world total. Wheat is grown on more land area than any other food crop. That's 220 million hectares in 2014. That's staggering. But where does our love of all things wheat come from? Next up, we're speaking to Bill Angus. What Bill doesn't know about breeding in a whole field of wheat isn't worth knowing. He's been working in wheat breeding for many years and has experience all over the world. And I think you will thoroughly enjoy listening to him. 
We can trace wheat back over 10,000 years, but it's only really when tools allowed wheat to be crushed into a flour that could be made into a dough that it became a staple. I don't think anybody knows the definitive answer to where it evolved or when it evolved, but um, the consensus view is that it did involve, that it uh, evolved uh, around 10,000 years ago by three relatively mundane grasses coming together. And this was all in what they call the Fertile Crescent, which was around uh, Iran, Turkey, Afghanistan, those sort of areas. And then people recognized the value of it in terms of nutrition. And it just spread around the world. And in a way, I think that illustrates the huge diversity that there is in the crop. Over the past century, what have been the major developments in wheat breeding? Well, first of all, productivity. Um, we're seeing phenomenal yields now. Uh, you know, in New Zealand, we're seeing 16, 17 tonnes per hectare. 30, 40 years ago, we had the Green Revolution, where India, as an example, moved from being an importer of grain and on the brink of starvation for many of its people to being a, a producer of grain which not only fed its own people, but were actually able to export to neighboring countries as well. And that came around by one simple uh, genetic trait, and that was the move towards semi-dwarf varieties. Those dwarfing genes came originally from Japan. They moved into the United States, into Washington State, and they then also moved into places like Simit in Mexico. And they have transformed wheat production globally. So that's the big, the big, big change. And that meant that growers could then intensify production so they could add more nutrition to the crop. Good wheat takes a long time, doesn't it? So the breeding cycle is a very long one. What role have agritech companies such as BSF played in the way that we grow wheat today? Large companies have a major, major part to play. Now, the reality is, of course, that if we lived in a world with no agricultural products, such as fungicides or growth regulators, we would be starving. It's as simple as that. In the UK, we have the most fantastic climate for growing wheat, no doubt about it, absolutely. Um, probably only New Zealand and parts of the Pacific Northwest can match us in terms of output. But we also have the most wonderful environment for every wheat disease that you could ever wish to see. So I embrace the fact that, that the large corporations can do two things. One is they can bring us technologies that we, um, we didn't, we're not actually able to develop in our own genetic material, that there are gaps in there. Um, but the second thing is that they bring the investment in which is absolutely critical if we want to continue developing good genetics. We must respect the environment, absolutely. But I do think that we have a responsibility to look at it from a global perspective and say, what can we do to help our fellow man around the world? And the only way you can do that really is if you've got the capabilities and resources of some of the large um, agrochemical companies. In his hugely fascinating and successful book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, Yuval Noah Harari states the importance of the crop, but also the fact that it changed farming. The new agricultural tasks demanded so much time 
that people were forced to settle permanently next to their wheat fields. This completely changed their way of life. We did not domesticate wheat, it domesticated us. What a fascinating thought. But since we were domesticated by wheat, we've come a long, long way. And over the millennia, so has our understanding of the crop. In this episode, we will primarily be focusing on the work that has currently gone into hybrid wheat. Hybrid wheat is a cross between two carefully selected pure lines. Each hybrid variety has genes from both parent varieties. The hybrid vigour achieved by crossing two distinct varieties should result in a superior crop. Hybrid wheat is produced with traditional breeding techniques similar to how hybrid corn is produced. It is not genetically engineered in any way and as such it should not be labelled as a GMO. But a knowledge of the genetic makeup of the crop is a huge benefit to scientists and growers. And this is where we meet Kelly Eversole. Kelly is a pioneer in agricultural genomics, biotechnology and information technology. Since 2005, Kelly has led the International Wheat Genome Sequencing Consortium. I grew up on a wheat farm in southwestern Oklahoma and still have ownership, partial ownership in that farm. So it's been something that's been part of my life from the very beginning. Uh, the thing that always seemed to give farmers an edge was technology, whether it was in better seeds, in uh, better tools, implements, etc. That was really the key. Kelly has been an expert in both plant and animal biotech and was key to the maize genome project that mapped the maize genome. I kind of became known as a science nerd in agriculture in Washington. Soon, farmers and growers took notice of her pioneering work. In order to truly understand how wheat grows in the optimum conditions the crop thrives under, Kelly set about mapping the wheat genome. In 2004, I was approached by the wheat growers in Kansas, and they said, we want what maize has. And we want to make sure we have the tools to keep wheat as a profitable business in the United States. So we want the genome sequenced. And that's how I kind of got involved. Well, they said the maize genome was impossible to sequence. They certainly said the wheat genome, that we were crazy to think about sequencing the hexaploid wheat genome. So, but if it's impossible, I tend to like it. So it's, I like challenges. And, and. Kelly, why is it so important to understand a species genome? Well, primarily because it takes so long to breed anything because we actually have to go through a 15-year process. You find a phenotype that you like, so you, you have to grow it out over a period of a year and then see does it yield what you wanted it to, is it the right uh, does it have the right level of protein? Does it have the, the right yield? Does it have disease resistance? Does, is it tolerant to drought? And that is a very long process. And in fact, one of the challenges with, uh, with crops as opposed to so-called plant model systems is this fact that we have to actually grow things out to see if in fact it's, it's true. And one of the things that genomic tools gives us is the ability to link the, the genome and pieces of the genome to the traits or to the phenotypes that we're looking for. 
So you can basically bypass many many of those years of breeding out to actually identify, okay, these are the two varieties or the two hybrids that I actually want to cross to bring into my elite breeding lines. And I want to do that because they have disease resistance or or, st- or stress resistance of some kind, or they have a unique characteristic that I want to bring. So it's really, without having those landmarks, it makes it extremely difficult to, uh, to accelerate the breeding process. And then when you think about it, uh, even in terms of, of the best of scenarios, we're less than 30 years away from 2050 when our population is supposed to be relatively high and there are challenges with us being able to feed the world and to, to meet all of our food and, and fiber needs. And with that, you know, if you think about it just in terms of breeding, that's not very many years of traditional breeding when it takes 12 to 15 years to find varieties. The other aspect that we're dealing with is, of course, our changing climate. You know, with the climate changing, we're having new disease stresses. Diseases that have never been present in some areas are showing up now because of climate change. So here we have these varieties that are not adapted to address to the to the seeing those diseases. So we need varieties that can address those. And if you go through, if you think about, well, if it takes 10 years even to find a disease resistant variety and get it into the market by that time you've got another disease it's something else so you have to, you're constantly in almost a a treadmill trying to get to that next step and the way we we do that is with the genome we be we're able to link the the traits themselves that we're looking for with the genome and with parts of the genome that when we can scan through and find that with a computational tool, then we know where, how, where, how, and why different things work. But now that we have that first high quality reference, understanding what the different parts of the genome do is now in exceedingly important. So we call this functional annotations. So it gives us those kinds of tools to really understand how the plant works and how it either takes nutrition, you know, the nutrient acquisition, how it um, relates to the soil, what kind of soil it grows in best, how it deals with water, etc. And it really will give us those kinds of um, tools that we can really begin to develop varieties that are better suited. One of the things that we hope to do is to take these land races and all of the high quality sequenced uh, wheat varieties and put them in a database that actually a breeder of any size, whether it's public or private breeder, can actually take their line and compare it and see where the differences are, and then begin to think about how do I change to become more resilient, to develop a more resilient variety. You intimated earlier about the complexity of the wheat genome. 
how does it compare with other crops that have had their genomes mapped like corn, as you mentioned earlier? It's an interesting one in the sense of just pure size. So the maize genome is about one-fifth or one-sixth of the size of the wheat genome. So sequencing a wheat genome is like sequencing five and a half maize genomes or, or corn genomes. So just in terms of the size, it's massive. And um, the other aspect about it is the degree of repetitiveness that's in the genome. Because when you, basically when you sequence things, you then try to bring it back together and put it in a sequential order. And if you've got repetitive aspects of that, it makes it more challenging to do it. And over 90% of the wheat genome is repetitive. So it is a challenge in that aspect. The other thing that makes wheat different from things like maize, sorghum, soybeans, rice, is that the wheat genome is hexaploid, meaning there are six copies of each genome. So in, es and in, in essence, if you think about it, we've got three diploid genomes that are there, uh, two of which we know the origin of, the third one we don't even know the real origin of, of it from an evolutionary standpoint. So we, there is some similarity, but it's not identical. So these are not three or, or six identical genomes. And so when we go back to putting the genome sequence together, we have to figure out which genome does it belong to. So it's really quite complicated in that respect. And um, but to me, that's part of that's part of why I believe that it's able to be grown everywhere. It's that resilience of what we call polyploid uh, genome. It has more than one genome in it. So, but it makes it uh, challenging. Um, but very interesting. When it comes to getting the, those genetics into the hands of farmers, um, what are the potential benefits of where we are now, understanding the wheat genome, and then being able to utilize that knowledge to develop varieties and traits that will help farmers practically in the field? From the very beginning, our industry made clear that this wasn't a science exercise that they wanted tools and resources that they could immediately implement into their breeding programs. Our entire strategy was really based on that. It really gave the breeders the opportunity starting as early as 2014 when we published the first so-called survey sequence of the wheat genome. They were able to immediately take that information and start using it in their breeding programs. So we are seeing things in the field now that in fact come from the genome sequence. At the end of the day, if we're not developing something that can, can benefit someone in the future, then we've failed in our mission. And so I think that's really a critical component. The incredible pioneering work of Kelly and her colleagues at the International Wheat Genome Sequencing Consortium opened the gateway to a knowledge base that hadn't previously existed. 
farmers all over the world are hoping to benefit from the advent of hybrid wheat. And this is something that Alison Bentley is very excited about. She is director of CIMIT, the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Centres, Global Wheat Programme and the CIGAR, the Consortium of International Agricultural Research Centres, research programme on wheat. She leads and manages a team of international scientists who use scientific approaches to develop improved wheat germplasm. That's the genetic material within the germ cells. Knowing how the genome functions provides the opportunity to harness crop breeding to improve livelihoods. Alison believes in a collective vision for equitable food supply and in science-led solutions to deliver impact. Something that she believes is possible now hybrid wheat varieties can be produced. Wheat traditionally is an inbred crop, uh, which means uh, a plant will set seed and, and produce a, a final seed, uh, which, is, which is harvested. Hybrid wheat uh, is the product of, uh, of the hybridization or the coming together of two different parents. Um, and it really exploits a phenomenon known as hybrid vigor, which is that when you combine two parents with different characteristics, different underlying genetic components, what you get in the next generation is, is a boost uh, in the yield or in some additional characteristics, whether they be uh, disease resistance or uh, resilience in stress conditions. So the hybrid wheat just means what you're trying to do is capture the additive uh, and additional benefits of combining those two parents uh, and getting this jump in yields or some other trait of interest in the next generation. If we remember that wheat's consumed by 2.5 billion people worldwide, that really sets the context for, for why the improvement of wheat is so important. Um, and over half of the world's wheat is grown in the developing world in the global south, which is, is where the CIMIT work uh, is focused. So this is really focused on, on half the world's um, wheat production, feeding a really significant number of people who are reliant on, on wheat, not only as a source of calories, but also as a source of, of protein, uh, energy and, and other dietary components in their day-to-day their -day lives. And I think traditionally our breeding efforts have really been about yields, about productivity, because we know we have this, this upward slope of population um, and limited resources, limited land area, as, as you mentioned. And I think there really we do need, we know we need to produce, um, we need to produce more to sustain the, the growing population. But increasingly, we're much more aware of the need to also optimize the nutritional and use quality of the products. It isn't just about producing more. It's also about how we use our resources. So can we produce the same amount with a lesser uh, agrochemical input or input of labor? But, but growing now our awareness of the, the need to optimize the nutritional contribution to, to look at the input um, footprint of that production and also to think about climate resilience. So how do we maintain these levels of productivity with increasingly unstable uh, climatic and environmental factors? And, and I think hybrid wheat uh, holds potential, particularly for uh, the use of, of inputs, some evidence to suggest that hybrid wheat uh, can can reduce the, the input requirement, whether that be in terms of the disease uh, pressures or the, the um, fertilizer inputs into that. 
Uh, and also for resilience. So there is also evidence that hybrids can provide a greater resilience in terms of ensuring an acceptable level of, of yield um, in a certain environment. Traditionally, we've relied on selective breeding, which is crossing material with high-performing individuals and deriving the offspring of those using really kind of traditional breeding tools. The breeder out walking in the field, looking at the material, looking at the disease profile, looking at the yield data, uh, and using all of that information to choose which individuals to progress to the next generation and then to to release as varieties. Now we see in in the science and discovery space so much innovation happening. So we've got the sequence information. We've got uh, robots who can go through fields. We've got high throughput phenotyping from satellites. Uh, and the question really is now, how do we take all of that technology uh, and bring it in line with our traditional breeding approaches. So that's the theory. And for the past few years, crop scientists have been working away, crossing wheat varieties, showing the best traits to come up with the optimum end product. The importance of wheat for the global population signifies that hybrid wheat could really be a game changer for farmers, not just in poorer areas of the world, facing the most acute challenges when growing crops, but wheat growers all over. And BASF has been working hard to produce hybrid wheat for the market. Wheat as a global commodity, it's a mainstay. As everyone knows, bread is on the table of pretty much everyone's household. And as a basic commodity, we see it as being a critical component that is going to be needed now and in the future. Nevertheless, wheat is one of the few remaining crops that hasn't really benefited from transitioning into a hybrid crop. And hybrid wheat, it can open new doors for the farmers with potential to really bring higher, more stable crop performances. So BASF is bringing hybrid wheat to market by the mid-2020s, and we're calling this iDeltas. But how does it work in practice? Johnny Jacobs works in wheat hybridization at BASF. I've always had a passion for agriculture, for biotechnology. I, I grew up on a farm, actually. I'm a farm boy. My brother runs the family farm. I go back there occasionally. Johnny began by explaining to me the work currently being carried out on hybrid wheat. BSF has been very successful with canola in Canada. The hybrids are higher yielding and more stress resilient than the inbred lines. And we hope to repeat that same success with hybrid wheat. The breeding process is more complex for hybrids because in the end you need to have two good parents to make one good hybrid. Also, since wheat naturally is a self-pollinating crop, so to make crosses, uh, that is possible. For breeding, that is a standard practice. But if you want to make hybrids, you need to make those crosses at a very large scale. So it's not a matter of crossing a few plants, it's crossing big fields. And that is a challenge. The work that was done by the International Wheat Genome Sequencing Consortium is really essential and critical to all wheat research. Now that we have the wheat genome sequence, we can really link properties of the wheat, like yield, like drought tolerance, like nitrogen use efficiency. We can link it to specific markers in the genome or even specific genes within the genome and the contribution and performance of these markers and genes 
that is a constant. That is not dependent on environment. So now we can predict performance and we can track performance by selecting on these markers or on these genes. So in every generation of breeding, you struggle to make a small step forward. Using hybrids and using genome sequences, we think we can make bigger steps and faster steps, but it still remains an incremental process and also kind of a never-ending process because uh, there is always room for further improvement and also uh, the conditions change. But it is a continuous process and what we do today will be on the market, let's say, in, in between five and ten years from now. So by definition, you look at the future. You're not, you're not looking at tomorrow, you're looking 10, 15, 20 years ahead as a breeder and also as a biotechnologist. ESF is preparing for the launch of its hybrid feed. We are testing hybrids, we are producing hybrid seed, we are producing parental seed. We are optimizing the methods to do that because it's all new. We are working on all fronts to deliver our hybrids to the market in a few years' time. Busy times for Johnny, but exciting times. It must be so rewarding for plant scientists to see the fruits of their labor finally arrive on the market. And Johnny is definitely looking forward to the release of Videltis. But rest assured, before the hybrid wheat is released into the marketplace, it is undergoing a strict testing regime. Here's Ed Souza. Ed is global head of wheat breeding. I guess it's all down to him to work out when hybrid wheat is ready to go. Everything we're doing in the field now has some, some lab component to it. If we start in the laboratory, that would start a process that would be an initial discovery phase, that then would go to some sort of proof of concept. Does this actually work? and then a commercial development phase. The discovery is, what's there? Is it interesting? Is it useful? The technical proof of concept, can we make this work, right? Okay, can we actually make this something that a farmer can get value out of? And that often is has to be 100% field-based. When we think about hybrids, what we're thinking about is the actual raise in performance, which comes out of the hybrid vigor, but also the stability that comes from having multiple disease resistances, multiple tolerances. And so those are things that, that are just really critical, we feel, for long-term sustainable product productivity, is that ability to put together more choices in the field to respond to the environmental changes that happen. Scientists and crop innovators are working tirelessly to improve the understanding of the crops we rely on. And remember, none of this is genetically engineered. It simply applies the knowledge gained by the incredible geneticists to help speed up the hybridization of wheat. When you are buying your next bread, be it a white, sliced, a baguette, a flatbread, or your next cake, pasta, noodles, or if you are making a Caesar salad, it's worth reflecting on how wheat has remained a staple food for 10,000 years, and we're only now really getting to fully understand the cereal. Thank you for listening to The Science Behind Your Salad with me, Jane Craigie. In the next episode, I'll be continuing my exploration into wheat and discover how cultivation of the crop can help to protect a vital indicator of biodiversity. Be sure to follow and subscribe where you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening.